we must restore meaning to the great ideas, partly conflicting ideas, by which mankind is still living. The ideas of liberalism, democracy, and communism. Yes, the idea of communism. Hello, and welcome to Marxism in Our Time a new podcast of Marxist ideas and debate from the Deutsche Prize Committee. Thanks for tuning in. The Deutsche Prize is an award given in honour of the historian Isaac Deutscher, who you just heard there in our intro addressing students in Berkeley during a teaching against the Vietnam War in 1965. Each year, the prize is awarded to a book which exemplifies the best and most innovative new writing in or about the Marxist tradition. My name's Kane Shelley. In each episode, I'll be joined by a different member of the prize committee in hosting an author of a book that made it to our 2021 shortlist. The winner of the prize in 2021 was Ronald Sunni's Stalin, published by Princeton University Press, and Sunni will deliver this year's Deutsche Lecture in November. We want to use this podcast to showcase all the other fantastic books that made the shortlist, hopefully introducing a wide range of contemporary Marxist thinking to an audience that might otherwise miss the debates happening in journals and academic books. Our thanks to the Lippmann Miliband Trust for helping to fund this initiative. Today, for our very first episode, I'm joined by committee member Leia Upi, and our guest is Dina Zuvala, presenting and discussing her book, Capitalism as Civilization, A History of International Law, published in 2020 by Cambridge University Press. Dina is an associate professor in the College of Law at the Australian National University, and she obtained her PhD from Durham Law School in the UK in 2016. Dina's work focuses on the political economy, history and theory of international law, with a particular focus on historical materialism, deconstruction, feminist and queer legal theory. Dina, welcome. It's great to have you with us. Leia, I'll now hand over to you to kick off the discussion. Great, thank you very much. So uh, this is such a brilliant book that brings together three themes. One is the way in which the concept of civilization that has been central to Enlightenment political theory, to the consolidation of modern international law, interrelates to the idea of capitalism and to the consolidation of the modern state and the modern state system. And it's a brilliant book, both methodologically and substantively. Methodologically, because it navigates between debates in Marxism and deconstruction literature by putting together uh, textual analysis and an understanding of historical material relations to explain the emergence, the patterns that have shaped international law, but also the ways in which concepts central to the making of international law are still very much with us and help us understand both the contemporary state system, but also the way in which Western states interact with each other and shape dynamics of uh, globalization and of relationships with other states in other parts of the world. So it's a book that is both a historical book that talks about this emergence of the standard of civilization, but which also helps us understand the present, understand international law and understand the way in which international law relates to capitalism and to the making of the particular kind of capitalism that is now dominant and that shapes power politics. So I thought we could start perhaps by exploring these general concepts with which the book starts. The general concept is that of the standard of civilization. 
And perhaps Nina can, Nina can start by uh, saying something about what is the standard of civilization and how does it relate to the emergence of capitalism and the consolidation of the modern state that she claims goes hands in hand with the development of capitalism. Of course. Uh, before I do so, I really, really want to, ha- to thank both of you, Kane and Leah, for engaging with the work um, with such generosity, especially under such tough times and in the midst of industrial action season um, in the UK. So thank you very much for your time. Um, so yeah, as you said, the book focuses on the standard of civilization in international law because I'm an international lawyer Um, by training, but obviously as a discourse, as you pointed out very well, permeates enlightenment thinking. Um, You could have a very similar, I think, analysis in political theory or even in everyday discourse, for example, the terms um, through which the conflict in Ukraine is debated even in like... um, mass media, right? So I think some of the things I'm going to say have a certain degree of transferability beyond international law. Um, So in international law, civilization has attracted some attention, especially the past 20 to 30 years when lawyers became more aware both of the history of international law in general and of the imperial history of international law in particular. And there is a number of explanatory approaches. The standard one is the standard of civilization was a form basically of Western exceptionalism or Western provincialism, um, that basically ran its course during the 19th century and by 1945, um, the end of World War I and the promulgation of the UN Charter became redundant, became historical. To which, especially post-colonial scholars, obviously, as you can imagine, have objected by showing contemporary relevance of the standard. And I agreed with that and with these objections, but... I thought there was something missing about the historical specificity of the standard of civilization because I think if we look at many, if not all, legal systems, there will be juridical mechanisms that create hierarchy and inclusion, right? This is not... um, a prerogative of modernity or uh, of the West, legal systems work like that. Draw lines about who is in and who is out uh, and who benefits or enjoys more rights and duties than others. So my question was, what is historically specific about the standard of civilization that differentiates it from other juridical mechanisms that have been used for oppressive or exploitative purposes, right? And my answer was, well, there is something unique to the standard of civilization as a mode of argumentation. And by that, I meant that I noticed that in particular, it was structured around two poles. On the one hand, what I ended up calling um, in a Lockean key, obviously, a logic of improvement in which 
international law offered a promise to non-Western, non-white majority political communities that they could be included in the legal order in equal terms if only basically they became modern and capitalist states. So in my very Marxist reductivist moments, I say, you know, at the end of the day, civilization is property and contract. And I think there is some truth to that. But I think there was more to this, and especially what Leah pointed out about also statehood, territorialized relationships of power, bureaucratization, some degree of separation of powers, some degree of even of biopolitical management of populations, right, was essential uh, for this logic of improvement to be fulfilled. But I argue that there is always a counter tendency, and that's the logic of biology, which constantly defers this promise of inclusion based basically on ideas of immutable difference. That, oh yes, you've done all these reforms, great, but there will always be a distance that you will never cover because you're fundamentally different. And very often, this immutable difference found expression through the idiom of race, which is to be expected. But not only that, very often it found expression through the idiom of sex, and I'm using sex instead of gender to mean a conceptualization of sex as natural, stable, and binary. Uh, sometimes it found expression through ideas of adulthood versus childhood, right? The idiom shifted, but the logic remained. And I said, okay, so this is the argumentative specificity of the standard of civilization. But where does this argumentative specificity come from, right? And I'm, I'm a historical materialist, I'm a Marxist, so I didn't think it came from within international law. And the answer I try to articulate in this book is this argumentative conundrum came from real uh, material contradictions of global capitalism. And in particular, I'm interested in the contradiction um, through which capital and capitalism both expand in a limitless way, creating homogeneity, hence the demand for improvement, improvement meaning similar-ish capitalist statehood. But at the same time, this expansion, and that's a very standard, of course, Marxian argument, is always uneven. This expansion always creates differentiation and stratification the same time as it aspires to create homogeneity. And this is where the logic um, of biology emerges, right? A rationalization of this unevenness produced uh, by globalized capitalism. So this is, um, in a nutshell, um, what I'm arguing in this book. And as you said, I try to pay close attention to texts while at the same time situating this text within overarching material structures. Great, thank you. I wanted to perhaps explore a little bit more these two concepts and go a bit deeper in how they relate to capitalism and maybe also explain, uh, focus perhaps more on how they relate to this connection between capitalism and modern international law. So you say that the logic of improvement and the logic of biology pull in opposite directions. And I wanted to ask, is this a feature of capitalism when it expands outside the boundaries of the European continent? 
And how would you account for that? As I was reading your pages, I was thinking about the way in which Marx talks about uh, the fact that capitalism removes all the boundaries of hierarchy and is in some ways a universalizer and praises capitalism in these pages in the Communist Manifesto, where he talks almost about this kind of emancipatory force that capital has when Marx says, you know, tears down the Chinese walls and uh, it breaks down families and it breaks down structures of hierarchy and tradition and so on. And so there he seems to embrace this idea that capitalism requires the logic of improvement much more and that it would seem that the logic of biology is in some ways undermines it and undermines this universalist pull that capitalism has. So uh, I wanted to ask you how you see the logic of biology then relates to the expansion of capitalism to other parts of the world. Why is that? You seem to suggest that that's also an essential component of how the system develops and an essential component of this connection between capitalism and the modern international state system, which requires international law. So could you say a little bit more to explain that link? Absolutely. So I think you tapped into a very important and unsurprisingly very controversial discussion within uh, both Marxology, but also Marxist political theory more broadly, right? Which is what was the relationship of Karl Marx himself with the non-European world, but also what should the theoretical relationship and therefore the political relationship of Marxists be with that. And you're absolutely right that in the manifesto and also in the earlier journalistic articles uh, of Marx, this is the spirit, right? The, the spirit of capitalism as a real progress in relationship to the quote-unquote especially Asiatic mode of production. I am of the opinion, um, and, and others have made this argument before me, that this is a phase um, that for Marx starts coming to the to an end by the late 1850s, um, especially with the revolt in India. Marx starts thinking much more seriously about um, capitalism and the non-European world. And in my view, this shift has basically been completed in volume one of Capital. So already in the 1860s, I think Marx something has something much more nuanced to say about that, which is especially towards the final chapters um, of Capital Volume 1, discussions, uh, brief but existing discussions of racialized slavery, of uh, colonialism in the Americas, but also of settler colonialism in Australia, where I happen to be uh, based as moments of primitive accumulation and actually as essential composures of primitive accumulation. That primitive accumulation in, in England, for example, in the Industrial Revolution would have been impossible without the gold and silver from the mines of Latin America and without um, the, the slave labor um, of, of enslaved people from the African continent. So I think by that stage, Marx has started thinking much more seriously about that. And we know, you know, that at the end of his life, he was also thinking very seriously about indigenous um, societies as prototypes of radical democracy. So he had moved very far away of this idea of non-capitalist, non-Western societies as 
quote-unquote primitive. He held up this society in his notes, his, his ethnological notes, as actually um, exemplary in some respects of how societies should look like, even under socialism or communism. And of course, there is the subsequent traditions of Black and Indigenous Marxisms that take these elements of Marxian thought and create much more complicated um, structures. And of course, the idea there was that um, free labor um, is not a precondition um, of capitalism, but also that categories of free and unfree labor are partly liberal and partly juridical constructions, they don't really tell us much about the realities um, of everyday exploitation. That doesn't mean there is no difference, either moral, political or economic. There is, There are differences, but not as um, rigid as um, liberalism, for example, may um, may uh, assume. So I, I, when I spoke of this logic of biology, I tried to engage with this tradition, traditions of indigenous and black Marxism, as well as the part of Marxist thought um, that took very seriously um, capitalist expansion in the non-European world and the fact that um, for the factory and for wage labor to operate in Britain, it was necessary that the land and labor of people throughout what we would now call the global south would be what early 20th century Marxists say call super exploited or they would be devalued. So I would say this unequal tendency is fundamentally part of capitalism. It doesn't mean that all these stratifications were created by capitalism. Some of these stratifications were pre-existent. The most obvious one will be gendered oppression that pre-existed capitalism. But I think they were both re-signified what it means to inhabit a gendered body, changed fundamentally, I would say, um, in the early modern period. Um, and also they were embedded in very in, in entirely novel systems of production and circulation. Um, and for that reason, um, I'm, I'm trying to use this concept of the logic of biology to also make sense of the fact that um, it was first with the onset um, of merchandise capitalism and then with the onset uh, of industrial capitalism that we see both major waves of colonization, um, but also we see very important moments and very important shifts in international law. Right. And this seemed to me like too much of a coincidence to assume um, that it's somehow unrelated um, with each other. Um, I hope I answered your question. Yeah. And going back to the shifts in discourse in international law, one of the really important and interesting things that you point out is the way in which this concept of the standard of civilization is a kind of flexible context uh, concept that gets used in a particular way, with a particular emphasis on, for example, primitivity and natural hierarchical racial differences in the 19th century, but then begins to shift in the 20th century and gets into incorporated 
in international law in a different, in a slightly different way, even though the roots are sort of still there and this tension between the logic of improvement and the logic of biology are always there. And one of the moments that you highlight in explaining this shift uh, historically is the interwar period and the mandate system. So the mandate system seems to be crucial to understand this kind of discursive shift from the 19th century imaginary that seems to naturalize hierarchies between people into something that, to me, when I read your book, looked very much like international discourse and international law as we know it, with uh, sort of a terminology that we would find more recognizable than the terminology of the natural hierarchies of race or or gender that shaped the 19th century. So why is this, uh, could you say something about why this transition occurs and why the mandate system is important and what does it, what it gives us? Absolutely. Um, to take a step back in general and talk about what he said earlier, that the structure of the argument persists, but its precise content evolves. Partly, I think this is because of struggles and the way they leave their imprint in international law. And these struggles can be class struggles, as in struggles between um, the bourgeoisie and the exploded. It can be also struggles between different ruling classes. And I think because international law is mediated so heavily by the state, we see both aspects um, playing out. And I would say also aspect of obviously struggles and competitions between different factions of capital, right? Including national versus international, financial versus industrial, etc. So struggle is important. Um, I didn't always draw it out very explicitly, but I think, as you said, it does not undo the structure, but it does undo its content. And that is very important, right? It is important analytically. It's important to understand how this changes, but it's also important politically. How exactly, whether you are racialized, one is racialized explicitly or not, can sometimes be the difference between life and death, right? This is not to be necessarily um, easily dismissed. So I think in the interwar period, a number of things happen and lead to what I think you diagnosed really well, which is to a discursive structure that is more familiar and perhaps less revolting, and therefore perhaps more insidious um, in comparison to 19th century. One thing is what it means to be an improved state shifts slightly. You still need property and contract. You still need a centralized state apparatus and territorialized relationships. But at least some sort of a gesture towards welfareism becomes essential too. And we see it in the debate about the emancipation of Iraq um, under the auspices of the Permanent Mandates Committee, that at least some performance of very basic welfareism becomes important. It's not enough to show that you have contract law and police to enforce it. You also have to show that you have at least some hospitals, that you are doing something for the quote-unquote labor question. Some schools, who gets to go to the schools is a different question, but you have to show them. And I think partly this obviously um, uh, reflects broader shifts um, 
towards welfareism in the global north as well, so in, in Europe, in the United States. It reflects also the struggles of the colonized people on the ground, right? That even that this gesture became necessary shows something about the slow rise of anti-colonialism that made these gestures necessary. Um, and at the same time, a very open discourse of barbarity and savagery gets sidelined. And we see, I think, really a rise of the discourse of the childhood versus adulthood. So the idea that this is one species, uh, but we are within an evolutionary path, which was a controversial proposition in the 19th century, right? That this is one species. And I think there is various explanations for that. I think the rise again of anti-colonial politics played a certain role. I think also, and many have argued that, that, you know, the civilizational shock of World War I did raise questions about the unquestionable civilizational superiority of Europe, right? The carnage that was World War I did shake a bit uh, the confidence even of the most confident professionals of empire. Um, and of course, I think the other shift that happens is that now this discourse happens in institutions. And I think that's something that also makes it quite familiar to us, that it happens within an international institution. Um, it's constrained by diplomacy. Uh, also, you can't say too many very obnoxious things because other imperial powers are also sitting on the table and they may exploit it. And there is also a certain degree of openness and, again, at least nominal openness to those under the mandate, at least in theory, you can table and petition and air your grievances. In reality, 90-something percent got rejected, uh, many of which were not even considered, but there is a certain understanding of publicity and participation um, that I think creates, yeah, discourse that in contemporary liberal democracies or in contemporary institutions start sounding much more familiar than the language uh, of mid-range foreign office bureaucrats in 1859. Yeah, and one thing I think that sounds to me like it gets us very closer to what we would recognize now is this shift between so entrenching hierarchies and saying these people will always be backward and primitive and are just different to entering this developmental narrative where they're not radically different and impossible to improve, but they're just underdeveloped. And to me, that seems like very much the kind of narrative that still shapes and pervades international law and international relations right now. One thing that you mentioned in connection to that is, uh, and that might be interesting to explore, is the role of the Bolshevik revolution and the importance that uh, the, the, the Bolshevik context, the discussions that emerge around then play for this shift and for the entrance of what you call welfareism in international law and this kind of openness to concerns about, as you say, education or the standards of living of workers and so on. And the other uh, aspect is to what extent do you think the acceptance of elites based in the mandate system plays a role in the consolidation of this kind of narrative? 
That's an excellent question. Um, so I, I deal with the Bolshevik Revolution somewhat um, superficially. It's there, but it's not my my area of focus or expertise. Uh, colleagues and comrades like Owen Taylor uh, have done a much better job uh, in describing it. But obviously, um, the, there is the pressure, um, the pressure that gradually... The fear of communism, based either in reality or in under-communist panic, starts becoming a feature of international relations, even in the interwar period, and particularly in regards to colonial management through the mandate system, because, and this is where race re-emerges, colonized people were considered particularly prone to the quote-unquote irrationalities of communism. Um, and it's also interesting how um, different petitioners in front of the Permanent Mandate Commission uh, played that against each other to promote their interests. My favorite bit is a part um, in which um, the British representative had to account for the fact that an interfaith, intercommunal communist party was founded in, in Mandate Palestine. He had to go and explain himself in front of the Permanent Mandate Commission why they let this happen. And Jewish representatives said, oh, no, 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 it is primarily the Arabs that are doing this. And then Arab representatives said, oh, no, no, it's not us. It's primarily um, the Jewish inhabitants of Palestine who are doing this. So the fear of communism was real. Um, and that obviously led to repression, but it also led, I think, to concessions and to a certain degree um, of caution, if not about how colonial affairs were actually conducted, at least on how they looked like they were being conducted in Geneva. So that is one. And the second, I think it's a really important point that you raised, the one of complicity of the local ruling classes. And I think we see that both in the mandate system, but I think we see it much more broadly in the history of civilization, in this, oh, the concept uh, of civilization, which is a supposedly tactical adoption of the language which I think was not simply tactical. It wasn't simply playing the game because ruling elites, including lawyers, were using civilization in two ways. They were using it against Western states to improve their juridical and political position, but they were also deploying it domestically. Uh, and they were deploying it domestically against ethnic minorities against those resisting state centralization and capitalism, and they were deploying it against radicals and after a point, especially communists. So the, the discourse, in a sense, becomes quasi-universalized at some point. Many actors start making arguments in the idiom of civilization and unlike other colleagues, I did not believe that this was merely tactical. I did also think that this was a class formation and state formation project domestically in these societies aided. Because at the end of the day, what, it's, what civilization promoted was pretty much in line both with the material interest, but also with the worldview and self-perception 
um, of many of these elites, especially those linked to capital, domestic and international, and those linked to the state. If you were a state bureaucrat or an emergent capitalist, your interests were pretty neatly served by the imperatives of civilization. Great. That takes us nicely uh, close to this kind of decolonizing period and the way in which the standards of civilization is appears in the decolonizing period and where you use the case of Southwest Africa to explain the tension between these two and in some ways also the, the pervasiveness of these two categories of the logic of improvement and the logic of biology and how, how they both get played out by different actors negotiating around about that time, how the standard of civilization is sometimes used by uh, the elites or the states that are trying to decolonize as a Trump card, to as a way of talking to the European uh, counterparts and to say, to talk about the sacred trust of civilization. But on the other hand, how racial capitalism is also very much part of that discourse. So could you say a little bit more about why that case is important in the book and why it's important to show the persistence of both these categories? So for those listeners who might not know, Southwest Africa was the colonial name of Namibia. Uh, immediately after, uh, so Nam Southwest Africa was part of the mandate system in the interwar period with South Africa being the mandatory power. And immediately after World War II, especially with the rise of open white supremacy and apartheid politics in South Africa, basically South Africa um, wanted to continue the tutelage over Southwest Africa. And actually, the most controversial bit was that they wanted to expand and they did expand um, the legislative apparatus of apartheid in Southwest Africa too. As you can imagine, this caused a huge outcry, especially amongst post-colonial states and the USSR, um, who used a mixture of juridical, political, economic, and violent measures to bring um, basically the colonial relationship between apartheid South Africa and Namibia to an end. And part of this is a very prolonged series of advisory opinions and cases in front of the International Court of Justice, um, in which, as you implied already, um, the applicants, uh, Liberia and Ethiopia, so two African states, basically try to use civilization against the grain. They try to say that civilization was exactly the opposite to everything I have described so far, and that it was South Africa that by imposing a very extreme form, as you said, of racial capitalism in Southwest Africa that was betraying the sacred trust of civilization. They had to do that for a number of reasons, including jurisdictional reasons in front of the ICJ. I think they created some of the most radical documents I have ever seen in international law, a very granular description of not only repression, but also labor exploitation and land expropriation in Namibia. And then they said, this violates civilization. But obviously, once they walked into this terrain, once they started arguing with borrowed concepts, 
um, as Marx himself would say, they started getting trapped within the logics of civilization because, for example, they had to say, you know, racial aggressive racial capitalism violates the sacred trust. But the purpose of the sacred trust should be the education of Namibians for freedom. So they were already accepting that Namibians were already, already for freedom. So they were accepting quite a lot of the baggage and they lost the case. They lost the case on other grounds, but I think they had lost the case as a radical case long before they lost the case, in fact. Um, and that was for a confluence of reasons, but I do think it was because um, they did not have total argumentative freedom. They had certain argumentative freedom within the structure, but that was limited. Um, but at the same time, and I think this is really worth pointing out also about the limits of legal struggle, it's also important to know that um, the Marxist-leaning self-determination movement in Southwest Africa, SWAPO, had a very different reading of the situation. They had language um, that, to an extent, was quite skeptical, if not outright contemptuous of this emphasis in international law. They have a beautiful turn of phrase that I use in the book in which they say, you know, international law has hidden rather than highlighted the actual politics on the ground. And they say our right to self-determination does not depend upon the niceties of international law. It exists well beyond the parameters um, of bourgeois legal systems. So it's important to also know without undermining or throwing away the importance of this legal um, struggle, that not everyone was as invested in it. Um, but also partly there were um, material factors on the ground. Um, SWAPO could not win by themselves. The, the, the movement was not powerful enough. It was suppressed very brutally, which made both international law and international relations quite important for the way the issue in Southwest Africa got eventually resolved. Thank you. And this takes us closer to the international law that we have. And your final chapter discusses both the case of Iraq to talk about the way in which uh, international law is bent to the imperatives of capital, but also about something like the unwilling or unable doctrine in international law. Could you say something to explain for people who are not familiar what this doctrine is and how the standard of civilization echoes through it, even though in slightly modified form, as you explained. Of course, thanks for asking. Um, so the unwilling or unable doctrine relates to international law that regulates the use of force between states. So situations like the one we're seeing now between Russia and Ukraine. And the unwilling or unable doctrine is a doctrine that is being promoted the past, I would say, 10 years, especially by U.S. scholars and scholars with very deep relationships uh, to the defense and national security state in the United States. And it says basically that 
state A that tends to be the United States and its allies can use defensive force against state B if state B is unwilling or unable to stop basically terrorists from operating um, in its in its territory um, and is supposedly threatening um, state A. And again, as you and your listeners can imagine, state A is the US and its allies. State B is usually a post-colonial state, especially states such as Pakistan, Yemen, Afghanistan, and Syria. This is basically who is unwilling or unable. And I looked a little bit at the way in which supporters of the doctrine, or at least some supporters of the doctrine, go about um, elaborating who is unwilling or unable, because they can't really openly say, well, it's Pakistan. Um, And I think there is two aspects to it. The one, which is the aspect of the logic of improvement, is not just being a capitalist state, not simply being a neoliberal capitalist state, but being a neoliberal capitalist state that participates basically in the political economy of the war on terror. You spend a lot of money um, for weapons, you spend a lot of money in training, you sign train and equip agreements with the United States, you have a big army and a big police. That is what makes you willing and able and therefore less likely to be on the receiving end of violence. Um, but at the same time, the the assessment of what who is unwilling or unable is not even always so factually grounded or granular. Very often there is dog whistling such as, well, we all know which are the states that can't control their territory. We know that it's a common knowledge. Um, and of course, yeah, it doesn't explicitly say it's the brown people, but it gets as close to that as you can say in polite company in, in 2022. So my argument is, uh, and I'm trying to think a little bit more about international law, political economy and the use of force these days. So I'm working more on the unwilling and unable doctrine. Um, that basically the war on terror created a huge political economic infrastructure, one that is um, privatized very thoroughly. It's fueled by debt and not by taxes, which is quite unique in the history of the United States, and I would say in the history of war under capitalism. Um, And therefore, especially through assetization, there is an entrenched interest in believing that the war on terror will go on forever. And the, the, the unwilling or unable doctrine basically encapsulates um, encapsulates that. The expectation, the juridified and protected, legally protected expectation that the political economy of the war on terror will go on forever. And does that mean that this takes us closer to the kind of logic of biology and less close to the logic of improvement that you uh, talk about throughout the book? This fact that this kind of perpetual acceptance of the fact that there is this hierarchy and that some nations, some countries will be able to be uh, to defend and the use of this discourse around the unwilling and unable. Which of these logics that you have detected would you say is more prominent in this particular discourse? 
That's an excellent question. I would say that um, at least explicitly, it is still the logic of improvement in the sense that sovereignty becomes very thoroughly economized in this context and very precisely managed. It's not enough to be capitalist. It's not enough to be neoliberal. You have to buy weapons from particular corporations to be willing and able. It's 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 a micromanagement, if anything. But I do agree with you that um the potential perpetuation of the structure, I would say, puts into question even this nominal promise of international law. I agree with you that there is something that makes this nominal promise even more farcical. Uh, than it was even in the 19th century sometimes. So that that's a good point, actually. I hadn't thought about it in these terms. Thank you very much. Great. Um, thank you very much, Ntina. This was a really fascinating conversation. It was very interesting for me. I hope it's been interesting for our listeners as well. I would recommend to everyone to read, buy the book or borrow it from the library. It's called Capitalism as Civilization, the History of International Law, and it's published by Cambridge University Press. Thank you very much for being with us. Thank you very much. Thanks to Dina and Leia for that fascinating discussion. That just about wraps it up for this week. We hope that you'll subscribe and tune in again soon. We've got upcoming episodes of all the other wonderful authors who were shortlisted. Himani Banerjee, Maya Powell, Panahiotis Sotiris, and Francesca Antonini. Our thanks again to the Lippmann Miliband Trust for their help funding this new initiative. To find out more about them, please do follow the link in the description. You can also find more info about the Deutsche Prize and find out how to nominate titles for the prize at our website, linked below. Thanks for listening.